It's always soccer in Philadelphia coming at you on a Friday afternoon. A big one this weekend. Your town, your team, your Philadelphia Union taking on the Chicago Fire, a much improved Chicago Fire team from the uh, Chicago Fire that we've seen over the last couple of years. And uh, joining me to talk about it, a very special guest uh, from the National and MLS writer for 442. Uh, he's also a Chicago Fire sideline reporter. Maybe you followed his stuff in Orlando as well. Uh, Mr. Paul Tenorio. Paul, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. No problem. So uh, let's get right into it then. Uh, Philadelphia Union, Chicago Fire. One team is moving in one direction. The other team is uh, going in the other other direction. Uh, what do you think about this uh, matchup tomorrow? Look, I think these games are always dangerous ones because, you know, as you said, I mean, the Fire right now is playing for seeding in the playoffs. Um, they're just three points behind NYCFC for that all-important number two seed in the East, a chance to have a bye in the playoffs. Uh, and you look down the standings in 10th place is Philly. Nothing really to play for, definitely out of the playoff hunt. Um, but I think, you know, there are guys that are, are playing for jobs. And anytime you come into that mentality, it, it can be a trap game of sorts. And so it'll be important for the fire to understand that, uh, to, to make sure they're maximizing their level. And, you know, they may be playing again without Bastian Schweinsteiger in the middle of the field, so they won't have that kind of calming presence. Um, to, to dictate the tempo for them. How much of a difference does it make if Schweinsteiger's not in? It makes a big difference, especially when the fire have the ball. He is such a dominant player in, in what they do. They, they like to run almost everything through him, um, and, and so when he's not on the field, they have to adjust that system. I mean, don't get me wrong, Dax McCarty is a fantastic player. I actually think early in the year he was the MVP of this team, but more and more... Um, the team started to depend on Bastian Schweinsteiger for everything that they did, including Dax McCarty. It opened things up for him, no doubt. And um, so to not have him on the field, you have to play differently. And, and everyone has a different type of role, and, um, and everyone has to step up a little bit more because he's um, such an important piece. So um, it's, it's no doubt a different team without him on the field. And I think, um, you know, for me, I think it maybe opens up things for, for the opposing team to, to maybe press a little higher up the field um, and try to try to create some turnovers in the middle of the park. Uh, win, a draw, and a loss. Uh, I'm sorry, win, a draw, and a win in the last three games for Chicago. I think they had that four-game losing streak coming into that. Um, what was up with that losing streak, and do you think they've uh, figured it out now? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I, I always believe that MLS is a league where everyone goes through a rut at some point in the season. And the, you know, how well you do in a season is determined by how short you can keep that losing streak. And I think the fire, you know, they, they got, in my opinion, maybe a little bit complacent. I mean, they, they go into the Gold Cup break in first place in the East, playing really, really great soccer. They were unbeaten in 10 straight, eight wins out of, out of 10 games, and everything was cruising. And they went into this break, and it just kind of broke up the rhythms of the team. They, they, you know, Bastian Schweinsteiger went back to Europe on a on an anniversary trip, and Johan Kapilov went to Europe and got married, and Dax McCarty was away for the Gold Cup, and you know, Nemanja Nikolic was down in Miami Beach, and guys came back, and you could see they were a step slow. Um, frankly, maybe a little bit um, less fit, and I think certainly uh, the mental part of the game took a lot to come back. So you, when they were coming back from this break, it, there was no easy games on the schedule. They went at NYCFC, at Sporting Kansas City, back-to-back, yeah. and and 
really got beat up in those games. So it, it kind of set things differently, and I think it took them a while to mentally recover, and, and they've been able to do that now and, and start to get back to the way they played. I think injuries also played a big role, and, and having to pull back uh, Brandon Vincent and Matt Polster back in the lineup changed things as well. Speaking of Brandon Vincent, he was a guy that I was high on coming into last year's draft, and uh, they obviously the Philadelphia Union had a chance to, to go Josh Yarrow, Brandon Vincent, number two and number three. They took Keegan Rosenberry instead. Uh, I said I thought it was the wrong move at the time. Keegan Rosenberry went out and had a great year last year, and everybody was saying, well, Kincaid's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, you know, this year comes around. Brandon Vincent starts playing really, really well. Keegan Rosenberry's on the bench. I, I still see both of those guys as – long-term you know starters in this league and really really good players I always felt like it was just it made more sense to try to develop a long-term left back uh, instead of a right back I felt like it was a harder position to find um what, what's different with Brandon Vincent this year and where, where do you think we are with the Vincent and Rosenberry thing I think the biggest difference is confidence um you know watching Brandon through his rookie year he was doubting himself a lot um and and the coaching staff didn't take it easy on him they they were pushing him very very hard um, they were riding him on every decision he made, and I think it really sapped his confidence a bit. And, you know, this season started, and almost immediately after Bastian Schweinsteiger was signed a couple games into the season, he started to talk to Brent. We need you. You know, don't doubt yourself. Start pushing forward. And he started playing almost exclusively through the left side of the back line um, and really combining a lot with Brandon Vincent on the left side and David Akam. And I think that gave Brandon a ton of confidence. And, and he started to believe in himself, and he started to play better. And, you know, one thing kind of leads into another, right? That confidence keeps rolling and keeps picking up. And I think the fire coaching staff, you know, after having missed him for those seven or eight games that they did out of the Gold Cup break, um, you know, and they, they lose six of those eight games, I think they realized how important Brandon is to what they like to do as well. So when it comes to comparing... Brandon and, and Keegan, I, you know, for me, I, I think that um, I, I think that Brandon's just a little further along. And, you know, MLS is a tricky place because when young players, young American players start to play well, it's really easy for that hype train to get started and for people to start throwing out things that, um, you know, maybe aren't the most accurate way to portray something. I mean, I know yeah. I saw people were calling Keegan the best 1v1 defender in the league coming into the season. It just wasn't <laughs> true. Yeah. And if you watch tape it wasn't it wasn't there yeah not to say he's not a bad player he just wasn't that good and I think it's difficult sometimes for a young player to hear that and to maintain the level and to keep pushing themselves and and Keegan Rosenberry learned a big lesson this season and I'm sure he's going to take take it to heart and and try to push himself to get back to a a higher level. Velko Paunovic um was a guy who I covered in Philadelphia in 2011. Um, one of the go-to quotes in the locker room. I really liked covering just covering him just because I he was very open. He would talk to you about tactics and things like that. Just a nice guy in general. Um, I'm not surprised to see the success he's having this year. Um, but what, what's it like being around him, and, and what, how do you observe him as a coach and uh, and how he's evolved this year? Yeah, I think he's a really smart guy. He gets it. He understands media obligations. He's very conscious of everything he says and does. Um, how it looks, how it appears, and, and why he's saying it. He's a really sharp guy. Um, I think he gets the game really, really well, the tactical side of things. And, you know, it's no surprise you put more talent on the field. Not only are you going to be a better team, right, and win games, but some of the tactical ideas Belkoponovich had last year that he tried to put in, it, it just didn't make sense with those players. They wouldn't, weren't good enough to execute. 
yeah. what he was trying to do, and he, and he was trying to do too much, frankly. He, he likes to change systems a lot midstream of games, and it was just too much for a team that wasn't talented enough, and it's been a little bit more effective this year. Um, I think the, the areas that Belkoponovic needs to continue to um, evolve is, is man management, understanding the American personality versus um, the Serbian personality, very different types of players and, and ways of being raised, right? And, and so, yeah. you know, in, in Serbia and Europe, there's a lot less of a coach putting an arm around a guy and encouraging them, right? Yeah. And, and I think, I think the, the more that, that Pano's here, the more he coaches, the more he'll get that and understand that. Um, but, you know, certainly from a soccer standpoint, I think he's a really, really sharp line. Yeah, and the irony in that is that his uh, coach while he was in Philadelphia was Peter Novak, a guy who uh, sort of came from the same kind of background and the same kind of coaching, uh, you know, Eastern European kind of uh, kind of background, right? Um, yeah, not too different of, of, uh, yeah. of, of the way that they think about soccer. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Um, well, you know, the, locally here – We've just been kind of. Uh, I would describe the the thoughts, the the fan base's thoughts about the Philadelphia Union as being completely apathetic at this point. They've really, really fallen off the the map, and and people are just sort of, you know, waiting waiting for the year to be done, I guess, and hoping to see some younger guys. Uh, that's a local perspective here. People don't really have high hopes for the franchise. Uh, what's what's the national perspective? I think it, it, it's one of kind of the same idea. I I, I don't think anyone looks. Union and is worried that that's a team that's going to surpass their team or beat their team, and um, they really haven't done anything to change that perception. Even last year when they started so hot, I think there was always kind of a little doubt that creeped in the back of the mind with people. And you know, this league is changing so rapidly, and it's going to get harder and harder for clubs operating on a smaller budget to keep up. And um, you know, I think you can have one or two or even three maybe good years in a row as a small budget team. But I don't think you're going to be able to be a sustainable playoff team um, unless you have a really good infrastructure in place with the youth academy um, and uh, a really strong infrastructure in place for scouting. And um, I know that the union have invested a lot in their academy, but they haven't had any yields come out of that yet. And I also, you know, I think that they they had some major missteps on some signings. Um, you know, Jay Simpson coming to mind first and foremost. Yeah. You know, for me that. That those kind of moves are, are absolutely fatal for a club like Philadelphia. You can't miss on a TAM level signing if your highest DP is $1 million, right? You have to nail yeah. the targeted allocation money signings. And, um, you know, that's going to be the task for Ernie Stewart. If, if they're going to operate on a budget, um, then your scouting, it, it better go beyond analytics, somebody that's an outlier in, in the third division in England or, or whatever it was you saw on a player like that. Um, you better be out there watching these guys and knowing if you're going to spend six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand on a player, um, you have to get it right because um, when when Atlanta's loading up and Toronto's loading up and now Chicago's loading up and spending money, um, it gets harder and harder to to match that level. Pablo Mastroeni uh, fired this year. Jeff Kassar fired this year. Uh, Jay Heaps fired last week, I guess. Uh, Jim Curtin uh, is still around, obviously. He was the youngest head coach in the league when he was hired a couple years ago. Uh, I, people ask me all the time, they say, what's the deal with Curtin? And, and I've everything that I know behind the scenes is that they're just going to stick with him, right? So my kind of weird, that's not really a theory, it's just kind of an understanding of it, is that 
the Philadelphia Union don't have a ton of ambition, and so that doesn't really provide Jim Curtin with the the talent that he needs to win. But because the Philadelphia Union don't have a lot of ambition, that's kind of protects his job, and they're not they're under no pressure or no stress to remove the manager at the same time. It's almost like a weird kind of purgatory with him where he's just sort of allowed to coach his way through it. Um, what, do you, what do you make of Jim Curtin from an outside perspective, especially related to you know now some of these long-term guys in Colorado and New England are finally dropping? Yeah, you know, I think um, Jim Curtin's got a really positive reputation among uh, the people I've talked to. He's, he's a really good guy, and I think he, um, you know, I don't, I think he's got some good ideas with some of the stuff that they've done in, in Philly, the way they've tried to play. Um, I don't have any problem with it. It does become difficult to judge a team like Philadelphia because I don't, you know, I looked at New England and I was like, man, this team is totally underperforming the talent on the roster. Um, I don't look at Philadelphia and think that. Yeah. I think that Philadelphia came into this year and they were going to be a bottom three team, you know, when I looked at the rosters, how I felt about it. Um, you know, the same kind of goes with Colorado. Um, you know, Pablo Mastroeni, you know, I think he lost a lot of uh, respect nationwide with kind of his, you know, this kind of, we're going to work hard mentality, and it doesn't inspire a lot of pace of developing players and, and playing a pretty brand of soccer. The way, the same way Ben Olsen kind of been stuck with that label in D.C. Um, Jim Curtin doesn't have that label. He also doesn't have the players. And, um, and so I think it'll be impossible to judge him until we see him with a bit more talent on the field. And will we ever get to see that? I don't know. I don't think so, right? So, yeah. um, you know, maybe, maybe more talent. Maybe more talent. I mean, they're, they're, they have the potential to free up some money this year, obviously with Maurice Adu's contract coming up. Yep. Um, you know, do they cut some ties with some of the guys that they whiffed on? Uh, Chris Pontius is a free agent. Um, so how they, how they manage that money maybe gives Jim Curtin a chance to go out and find some quality players and, and, uh, and change some opinions. Paul, here's the last one for you, and it kind of goes – it's not really hand-in-hand hand with that, I guess, but – you know, we every year it seems like, at least in Philadelphia, we come up, we come down to this every single year. But other teams go through it too. That when you're down and out, you know you're not going to the playoffs. Uh, people say, "All right, let's see some different people on the field." You know, play the kids, blah blah blah, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, the Philadelphia Union are just very. Jim Curtin's a very old school guy in the sense that you know, look, mathematically, if we're not eliminated, we're still going to go out and play the strongest team, and so on and so forth. Right? That's a narrative. Um, you know, but you got guys like Derek Jones who aren't playing. Guys like Adam Najim who aren't playing, um, you know, Jack Elliott's on the field, but Aguchi Anyewu's still playing. So, I, I mean, what's uh, obviously you're not going to put 11 kids on the field and let them get steamrolled by Chicago, but but where's the middle ground in you know trying to push this thing forward uh, while being competitive at the same time? Yeah, it's tough, right? I mean, it's really really difficult. Um, I think there has to be a commitment at some point to put young players on the field, and yet that has to be balanced with those kids earning their way onto the field, right? I mean, if you just hand people chances, then it takes a little bit away from that opportunity. And and for me, that's a big part of development. Like, there was a, a moment earlier this season when the Pirates put Georgie Mihailovic on the field. He's just 18 years old. Yeah. And I wrote I wrote that Georgie just wasn't ready. You know, he showed he wasn't ready yet. And I, and I don't know if Georgie read it, but if he did, he probably wasn't happy to see me write that. But just because he wasn't ready to be the guy yet doesn't mean that he's not a good player but the fire learned something about georgie and i think georgie took a big lesson out of that game you don't get those lessons and you don't get that kind of 
idea of where Georgie stands unless you put him on the field. So I get what Jim Curtin was saying this week and saying that these guys aren't good, aren't good enough, frankly. They, they haven't done enough to, to get onto the, the, onto the field. But you're really not going to get a, a, the best impression you can get of an Austin trustee or uh, a Derek Jones unless they're out there. Now, Jones had his chances this year. He's a little bit different than a guy like, like Trusty or, or Najem. But, um, you know, you've got to, at some point, you've got to start looking long-term and thinking long-term and saying, all right, let's get them out there and see how they react and, and see if that taste, that little taste of first-team play, um, inspires a little bit of, more of that motivation that we're looking for versus the tactic of saying, the tactic of saying, Look, they're not good enough, and hoping that inspires them to, to train a little bit harder. But it is it is a really tough thing if you're not the coach and they're tra- at training every day to know just how far off their level is from the first team. If they're way below where the, the starters are, it's irresponsible to put them on the field. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Hey, listen, Paul, I lied. I got one more for you, but it's a quick one. Um, no problem. <laughs> uh, Jack Elliott, rookie of the year in, in your eyes, uh, yes or no? Uh, you know what? I, I I was having this debate with Frank Lopez the other day. I, I'm going to say no because I just think Julian Gressel, to get onto the field with that team and have the impact he's had this season stands out to me. Yeah. Um, but I think Jack Elliott is the best story for a rookie. To be a fourth-round pick and to have the season he's had is spectacular. And I hope that it sends a message to all the stupid teams that pass in the fourth round of the draft yeah. rather than taking a kid and taking a look and, and seeing maybe, because it can't hurt. And uh, I think it's ridiculous that teams do that, and, and a, a guy like Jack Elliott is a reason why it's ridiculous. Paul Tenorio, national MLS writer for 442. He's also the Chicago Fire sideline reporter. You just, did you just land in Portland? Is that where you are? I am in Portland, yes. I'm doing the game on Sunday night for uh, for Fox Sports 1, uh, FS1, uh, Portland, Orlando City. Cool. Check him out on there, and you can follow him on Twitter. It's it's at Paul Tenorio, right? It's just your name. Yep, at Paul Tenorio. <laughs> all right, I thought I had that right. Paul, thanks a lot, man, for your time, and uh, we'll do it again for sure, all right? No problem. Glad to be on anytime. All right, you got it. All right, let's see what kind of questions we got on uh, the Philadelphia Union and the Chicago Fire here. Uh, Jason Weintraub, birthday cake, ice cream cake, cookie cake, or pie? Um, I'll eat all of them at the same time, man. I like sweets, but uh, only in a moderation, as they would say. Th- by the way, thanks, everybody, for the uh, birthday shouts. I appreciate it. Uh, 33 years old. I couldn't feel – never felt better. 33 is the new 23, right? Uh, Mark says, I'm having my bachelor party at the game tomorrow. Are you or Dave going to be there? Uh, Dave will be there. I won't. Um, I'm going up to – uh, Royersford for some beer fest or something at the uh, asylum, Penhurst Asylum. Um, Union win? Did the Union win? No, I don't think they win. I think they, I think they actually keep it close tomorrow. I don't know why they just have kind of that penchant for uh, you know p- playing a tough team close at home. But they, they always, this is where they start to slide, you know, where they just start to fall apart. And some of those summer games where they uh, they play well at home against better teams. I, I, you know, I don't know. Now I'm, I'm rethinking it here. I've convinced myself I've uh, I'm changing the line from two to one to three to one. Uh, Austin says I don't think there are any more questions they ask. Um, <laughs> all of the, all of the uh, Q and A sessions end with a lack of spending. No number ten and Marisa Du still injured. 
And that's, uh, that's true for this podcast as well. Uh, Rich Ransom, what's more important for the young kids, getting time for the union or the pressure of a steel playoff run? Um, that's a good question. I mean, both of them are, you know, situationally, you know, the different type of game, a different kind of, of uh, you know, context when you're playing in the playoffs and it's sort of a winner go home kind of thing versus playing at a higher level with the union, but knowing that the result doesn't really matter anyway, because you're already out of the playoffs. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I would rather just see, uh, why not both, you know, play these kids in in the steel games and then bring them back and, and play them in the union games as well. I mean, you got nothing to lose. Uh, EJ says nine months ago, the fire sucked as much as the union, uh, six missed playoffs. They missed the playoffs six times in seven years. Is there anything the, from their turnaround the union can copy? Yeah, I mean, spend more money. Uh, that's the one thing they did. Schweinsteiger, Nemanja Nikolic, and David Akam. But, you know, in addition to that, they, they also, just like these teams we've been talking about with Atlanta and Toronto, it's not just going out and spending millions of dollars on players. It's also nailing their acquisitions through every other avenue of player personnel. I know it sounds like I'm beating the dead horse with this, but Brandon Vincent, where did he come from? The draft. Dax McCarty, where did he come from? A trade. Juninho was a former MLS player that they got on loan from uh, from Tijuana, right? Uh, you know, a couple of homegrowns there, a couple of young guys. It, it's they're going down all of these paths, right? Chicago, Toronto, Atlanta, uh, even New York City. You know, to extent they're doing that too, and the union just aren't hitting on all those right now. John says, "Who on the current roster do you think should be a starter next season?" Uh, Andre Blake, if they don't sell him, Jack Elliott, Keegan Rosenberry, Wynaldum. Bedoya, Medunian in. Um, I mean, you can replace the entire front four for all I care at this point. Fafa Pico, maybe. Um, did you read Jonathan Tark's story on the FC Dallas Academy? What can the Sixers learn? Oh, no, I didn't. But, you know, I bookmarked that, and I meant to go back and, and do that. So thanks for the reminder. Um, Chris says, with other teams changing formations for specific opponents, can the U with limited – money survive being inflexible well if you listen to paul at the beginning of the podcast he kind of mentioned he alluded to the fact that velko Panovic was trying all these different things last year when they just didn't have the talent so i, I don't know there's there's nothing what, what what's keeping jim Curtin from going to four one three two or three five two with with more talent or different players i mean i think part of the reason that uh, not the reason they stick with the four two three one, but the reason they went with it in the first place is because it's a safe lineup and it's it's very common. A lot of guys have played it. It's defensive. It's organized. Um, and when you don't have a ton of talent, then that's kind of the default. That's what you do. You play that. Or you play four four two. Don uh, says putting Warren in and flipping Harrison Ali is uh, higher was a start uh, instead of Jim's usual swaps uh, with current players. What's the best formation? Um, yeah, that's good. You know, I wanted to touch on that actually. And, you know, if, if Dave was here, we probably would have talked about this earlier, but you know, a bunch of people wondering what the hell is he doing taking out, uh, El Sino for Warren Carval last week. Um, and what they did was they just inverted that midfield triangle, right? So they went from four, two, three, one to four, one, four, one. And, and what that does is, you know, so Warren Carval is then defensively kind of cleaning up behind those two guys. But when you, when you flip the triangle and you have two point guys up there, it changes the passing angles for Red Bull, you know, and where they can split the lines uh, from defense to, to the midfield. Um, you know, and it also allows them to, to the union to they're, – they're not sitting back as deep. The the look is a little bit different. You can press and, and maybe win a ball or turn a guy over. Um, but that helped. It, it definitely helped. You know, Red Bull, obviously the better team. There's just not enough talent with Philly right now. But I thought that was a good little wrinkle there. Uh, look, if you don't have a 10, just don't play with a 10, right? Uh, Alex says – 
Oh, Don's got another one here. Sorry. Uh, how likely is it that Jack Elliott wins Rookie of the Year? Twelman certainly noted his composure, uh, but in the United States, Flash he seems to always win. Yeah, I mean, Paul said that he thought it was going to be Julian Gressel, and I think um, you know the reason that he plays for the flashy playoff team certainly helps. You know, I don't know he hasn't really been playing that much though lately. I, if, if Jack Elliott does win it, it's going to be based on his late his mid to late season momentum, whereas Julian Gressel started out uh, really fast. And then kind of trailed off. You know, they don't really have him in the lineup now because their front four, they got uh, Martinez, Assad, Viaba, and uh, Almiron in there. And then they've been playing Lorenowitz, McCann, Carmona, you know, different combinations in there. Gressel has been a sub for them. So I don't, I don't know if that, that's what my main argument would be. Are you going to take a uh, guy who's now a sub and make him the rookie of the year? You know, I don't even know who number three would be behind those two. Maybe uh, Harks might be the next one up, I guess, but DC is worse than, than the Union are. So. Alex says, go into a wedding instead of the game on Saturday, open bar. What is the go-to open bar wedding drink? A properly made white Russian is my go-to. Yeah, that's a good question, too. Look, I, um, you know, usually when you go to a wedding, there's limited beer selection, right? Like, um, I don't know, Yingling, Bud Light, the Heineken, then maybe like one craft beer or something like that. Um, so that's like an opportunity. You got an opportunity to drink free limited uh, selection beer or free alcohol. Uh, you go with alcohol all the time, man. I drink uh, like Jack and Coke, you know, or Jack and whatever at um, at uh, in that situation. Craig says, how bad do things need to get before MLS tells Sugarman to spend or sell? Um, they don't need to get bad. They need to plateau. Um, they need to plateau. You know, expansion needs to stop or his uh, – the value of the franchise needs to level off. Aiden says, "List your all uh, your all time top ten union number tens if you can find number if you can find ten of them." Oh God, yeah. Um, are there ten of them? I don't know because Peter Novak didn't really play with one. You know, they went empty bucket uh, for a long time. Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna start start going backwards. Uh, Tranquil Barnetta, number one. Christian Maidana, number two. Number three would be. Uh, Roger Torres, I guess. Let's see. Maidana was here in 14, 15, uh, 14 and 15 and six. No, he was here. Yeah, 14. He was only here for two years, huh? Uh, who did they play before that? They didn't really have a number 10 because they played with two strikers. Keon Daniel didn't count as a number 10. Uh, Chacho Kude. I don't know. Would you go with him? They really haven't even had uh, many of those people who are worth mentioning. So, no, I can't find 10 of them. Um. And we'll end on this from Barbecue Football. Is seeing Bash and Schweinsteiger, uh, the ability to see Bash and Schweinsteiger play live, is that enough to get you out to the game on Saturday? Yeah, I don't really, I mean, for me personally, no, because I've had the, you know, I've been fortunate to see a lot of these guys now through working in the game. But I wonder if, uh, yeah, like, you know, people coming out just to see Steven Gerrard and they'll wear their uh, Liverpool jersey down to uh, Town Energy Stadium or whatever. I wonder if that's enough for them. But, uh Hey, listen, that's enough for me. 27 minutes. Just uh, happy to get another podcast done this week. I know they haven't been, uh, you know, top quality right now, but I just finished week two of the new job. Dave's busy with other stuff. And the Philadelphia Union are dog shit right now. But we're committed. We're committed and we'll keep doing the podcast until the end of the year. So Kevin Kincaid, uh, alongside Baxter, who I never introduced at the beginning of the show, Thanks to Paul Tenorio for coming on. Follow him. He's really, really good. Breaks a lot of stories. Really smart guy who obviously knows his shit. So it's soccer in Philadelphia. Thanks, everybody.